Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. I'm back this week. Big thanks to Matt Muscardi for taking over the reins. He's just a great human. We love him here, and thanks. And today, Megan Eastman and Matt Muscardi joined me to discuss a Wall Street Journal story about the oil-wealthy Williams family selling what they claim is their water to fracking companies. However, their neighbors disagree on the legality of that issue. And then we discuss the different companies that are being pulled into social movements, whether they want to or not, and how each company must adapt differently to this demanding environment. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, so our first story is about water and the selling thereof. So there is this family in Texas called the Williams family who recently sold their crude producing company called Clayton Williams to Noble Energy that's located in the Permian region of Texas. But the Williams family doesn't just own oil in that region. They also own a lot of land that sits atop of a lot of water. So one day the Williams family decided after they sold their company that they wanted to sell around 25 billion gallons of water a day to oil companies or to cities or to really anyone that wanted it. And since the Permian region is both a desert and a booming oil region, mostly fossil fuel companies came a calling. Now, we would usually have a stat card here to describe the Williams family, but I do not have one for a private citizen group. But I will say this, water affects all the industries we cover. Its scarcity was expounded upon most recently in both our food products industry report and in our cannabis thematic report. Please go check those out if you are able. So Matt, the problem here is that Williams is trying to sell water. Everyone around the Williams family is saying, please do not do this. How do we view this? Are a private citizen trying to sell a, a resource on land that they own? Uh, how would we view this as um, ESG analysts? If you go back to the, um, to the uh, drought in California, right? Um, it was a multi-year drought. Yeah. And one of the things that we looked at was um, we might not have a stance. To, we might not say that water should be priced more efficiently, or we might not say that it's priced inefficiently. It's like that. That is for the market to decide. But part of the market in this case is actually it's not just buyers and sellers. It's communities and policymakers because you're talking about a necessary um, input to life. And if you use the drought as a case study in California, you know, the paper we wrote at the time actually mapped geographically industrial users of water against water basins and farm users like ag users and said um, in a policy sort of decision about how to parcel out available municipal water you're going to have effectively water conflict, industrial users who need it, agricultural users who need it, and then community users who need it. And how you make a policy decision there um, is a big deal if you're an investor because you you might be saying, well, my price is going to go up to maintain the cost, uh, you know, to make it viable for people to have access to it to live um, or to, you know, make food. And what we saw play out was effectively a small scale water baron kind of thing where um, there were people who were buying up land with water rights. It was private water rights and companies like Palm Wonderful, who makes pomegranate juice, who sidebar, do we need pomegranate juice? Um, but 
getting back, you know, the point yes. was they have one of the largest farms in California and they have no water. They effectively are left to go to water barons who are selling water at whatever price that they wanted to set at the time was. Because in the absence of a, of a policy decision or in a policy decision that goes against that particular user, you're left at the kind of mercy of the market. So it's not a question of whether or not water should be priced. It's a question of whether or not it will be priced differently when it becomes a scarce resource. And inevitably, the answer is kind of yes to that. You're thinking of this from an investment perspective, there's a whole ethical range to it. And so you know, we've run into queries from investors sometimes who say, I don't want to invest in private utilities because I think water should be a public resource, private water utilities, that is. But an awful lot more of investors are looking at, will be looking at what are the risks to the portfolio when, as water stress becomes a bigger and bigger issue. If you've got this Kind of regulatory uncertainty possibilities of something ex- as extreme as nationalization or drastic repricing, subsidy, lack of subsidy, whatever it is, then you've got your holdings in your portfolio that are subject to a bunch of different risks and trying to get your hands around that's going to be really important. And so how do you do that? So, so the difference is, is a utility, you know, they sell the water and there's not many people that invest in utilities. There's some. There's not many. Not a lot of people. Well, Utilities compared to cash com- flow machines. Well, right? yeah, like, yeah, they do for income, but compared to companies like Kellogg, compared to companies like that reflects the regulation, though. That's that's the, that's the way they get regulated. They can't get to that size. They're not supposed to get to that size. That's what I'm saying. So you're going to have a higher proportion of companies that remove water than actually sell water. So that's when Mega. When you talk about portfolio holdings, more investors are at risk of companies needing to spend billions on water or having water scarcity and having to move their operations or uh, someone growing cotton in a water stress area and then having to shut down their operations. So it can't just be that companies disclose their water usage because everyone's just disclosing that they're at water risk. No, but that's, but that's an important, that's a, that's an important thing. And I, I, you know, the, the disclosure conversation is boring. Like getting companies to disclose more is like for three thousand years. That's all yeah. anyone's tried to do. But, so what do you do? Uh, but the but you need but to the know is where they operate. But the important part of that kind of equation is and and to the question of what do you do in your portfolio? Like what do you do today in your portfolio? You run a thought experiment, which is to say. Water is a scarce resource and it's increasingly scarce. If you play out a trade-off game, where is water likely to be allocated? Is it more likely to be allocated to uh, a, a Kraft or a Kellogg or a major manufacturer of food? Is it more likely to be allocated to fracking or energy where it's needed um, also as a key input? Is it more likely to be allocated to people just so they can drink? You know, those are that's the trade off question you want to look at your portfolio and say, where is my water scarcity? What what is the water usage of my portfolio? And then how is it likely to actually play out? Like, where is this resource potentially going to get allocated? And uh, that's going to vary a lot by jurisdiction, by jurisdiction, by not just by where the water's stressed, but by who's in by charge who's of it. in charge of it. Exactly. I think oh. if you start talking about other parts of the world with different types of governments, maybe democracies, maybe not, maybe populist, maybe not. 
then you start to see situations where it can be regulated very differently and it can even be seized and nationalized if you're talking about the water utilities or where operating permits may be withheld or the price of the water that a company has to pay in order to withdraw it may be uh, jacked up. Well, so this story in the Wall Street Journal was about someone selling an asset from their land to a public company like, let's say, Noble Energy, who is currently operating in the Permian Basin, which is where the story takes place. But it's still, even though the, this, this resource is being sold to a public company, it's a private landowner that's selling a resource that they seem to think that they have legal rights to. So I think for these types of transactions to take place, especially with a public company, won't that also require a municipality, a jurisdictional government to accept the fact that water removed from quote-unquote private land affects the surrounding areas? And to do that, doesn't a public company need to properly disclose maybe tracks of water availability as, as an oil company has to disclose the tracks of shale oil available to them? Because if they don't, and all of a sudden there's this drought and a community cannot safely access water, I think it will be such a flashpoint and the risks will come to head for the companies so quickly. Like everyone talks about stranded assets that all of a sudden all of a sudden people are going to say, we're not going to do oil anymore and it's going to drop. But if you if you have a situation like in South Africa and people are lining up for water and people are freaking out and then you have a company that's in that area that's taking water, it's going to be like a month change. And all of a sudden they're going to say, nope, we're cutting you off. This needs the population. We're having riots and it's going to be done. I think that's the major risk for every investor in their portfolio. So then I, I think you do get into this question of needing to look across your portfolio and you think about like carbon footprinting, you can do the same thing with exposure to water stress. Who are you holding and where are they operating and how much do they need? And then what are they doing to reduce their dependency or make themselves more flexible? It's worth saying, having said out loud too, that like because it's such a flashpoint, I think that's right. And because the risk is going to manifest, when the risk manifests, it could manifest quickly, right? Like it's not, mm -hmm. you think of it as like a long-term thing, like, oh, water is going to deplete over, you know, 20 years water it may be a single drought that sparks riots that changes the face of your portfolio in a single you know in, you know in one instance right it's also a flashpoint possible scenarios it's a flashpoint in the other direction companies that are actually looking at how to maintain preserve or even create new water you know fresh yeah. water yeah, for access it's an opportunity too. And those companies are like fewer and farther between. But, you know, it's going to, I think you're right. I think you're right that it's going to be like a, you know, it, it happens. It's, it's a snap kind of thing that, you know, the drought hits and within six months, it looks totally different. And there will be companies that benefit and companies that get killed. Okay, so for our second story, there are these massive protests happening in Hong Kong right now about China's extradition laws. And there's a lot of protesters coming out, and they naturally get really thirsty. And so the protesters have decided that Bakari Sweat, a Japanese water company, is the official drink of the protest movement. This was due to Bakari's parent company, Atsuka Holdings, pulling funding from a Hong Kong Television Broadcast Limited, which is seen as a pro-China company. However, upon hearing the news, 
Otsuka said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We did that because of issues with marketing, not to send a political message. Now, the stat card for Otsuka is we rated a triple B, and it has pretty bad corporate governance in our eyes, but that doesn't really matter because the management didn't make an active decision to support the Hong Kong protesters. They were thrown into the ring, and they decided that the customer base wasn't worth the political he headache and distanced themselves immediately. So, Matt and Megan, I want to ask you a hypothetical about this because this happens to a lot of companies nowadays. Nike is the most easy example to make. They have backed Colin Kaepernick. They have backed all the movements that have been kind of thrown at them, and they made a willful decision to do that. So what I want to ask is companies now have to deal with political or social movements regardless of whether or not they want to be a part of those political or social movements. And now let's say you're a company and your entire consumer base is 35 and under. And I tell you that my entire social media team is 40 and over. How do you feel about that as well, an investor? I, I mean, I, but I, that I don't think is the, I mean, like. I'd be freaked out. No, well, I mean, if, you know, Walmart's board is like on average 70 years old, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that like well, they, they can't brands. make an online decision, right? Like, um, they, I don't think they can. Don't be ageist, Let's Mike. Let's not be ageist just, here, Mike. Just because you're, just I, cause you're 12 I'm years old, don't, in be, this situation. don't be ageist. <laughs> I'm um, extremely ageist in this situation. Mm -hmm. It's clearly a, a different environment, but it's not a new environment. Like if you take apartheid, you know, it was a slower burn, but companies basically faced investor wrath over involvement in South Africa at the time. And it was a slow brand kill, right? Like it just wasn't today what makes it feel different with without like having historical context is the speed in which it could happen, right? Like Bacardi sweat is a perfect example of they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they, it took, it takes one picture on Twitter that says, you know, hashtag drink Bacardi sweat to, to, to like make the difference of them being sort of in a social movement, whether they mean to be or not, or not in the social right. movement, Right, they have to either embrace it or disavow it. Uh, the the thing that's different is the speed with which CEOs, boards, companies need to make that decision. Do we agree or not agree? Because they may have been able to avoid it long enough before where they didn't have to take a stance, but now they have to take a stance and they have to move quickly. Because you end so up with... They need with, to be agile it, and they need to be prepared. It's like it's like Beth, the Betsy Ross sneakers and Colin Kaepernick and Nike, right? Like the yep. Betsy Ross sneakers come out. Colin Kaepernick, who's a brand ambassador for Nike, says these aren't so good. Nike pulls them off the shelf and there's immediate backlash. It's not just backlash because I want to focus on the missed opportunity. Nike, so here's, here's where it uh, happened according to Edison Trends after Nike came out with that ad that featured Colin Kaepernick. They saw a 31% spike in e-commerce. Then, then there's this report by the 2017 cons communication that said 87% of consumers, now 18 to 35, I know I don't want to hate on you guys, but I'm just saying this is the consumers, 87% said they would buy a product only if it aligned with an issue that they loved. And 76% said they wouldn't buy a product if that product misaligned with a ideology. So Megan, this seems to be a pretty big deal, no? So Matt, you were talking about the speed at which things happen, and that's an important change from, say, the apartheid era. But we've also got changing 
customer expectations, changing public expectations, that brands can and will take stands and that people in some cases are aligning themselves with or against brands because of that. And I think that's where there's both kind of a short-term risk and opportunity, but also a longer-term one, which is that if a company does take a stand willingly or unwittingly, then there's a longer-term expectation of what it's going to do that they've got to live mm-hmm. up to. When we're prepping for this, we're talking about the, the fearless girl statue on Wall Street and the stand that State Street was taking there about gender equality, which, you know, on the surface of it is great. It's become a, a public monument. People like to take pictures, all of that. But it also means that the company is going to be watched more closely over the coming months and years about how they actually perform when it comes to gender equality. And if they don't live up to it, it's going to be a lot more of a big deal than if they hadn't taken a stand. Yeah. So would would you rather them have just not take a stand at all? Why put yourself out there? What if I was a uh, shoe company and I and there was this huge thing going on? These shoes were being used to beat up little penguins. <laughs> whales. Beat up little penguins. Beat up whales. <laughs> <laughs> and all these shoe companies came out and they said, you know, we support the whales. We don't support the whales. But the company you were invested in said nothing. See, I would think three things about that. I would, I think, number one, you have to differentiate between um, something that the company causes and something that the company is along for the ride, where it's like the company didn't send the shoes to the people to beat the whales, right? Like... That that would be a different scenario than if somebody bought all their shoes and then used them to beat the whales. And you're like, what are you doing? Don't put, come on. So there's that. That's that's number one, because I think that that differentiates something like the Me Too, the Me Too movement from Bacardi Sweat. Right. Like those are totally different social movements and and companies involvements in them. Yes. That's agreed. Totally different. I I think the second thing you have to recognize is that once the thing has happened, you need to have a long view because if it's, if you're the company and it's happened to you, you need to say, how does this string play out? And what does it mean five years from now that this happened? Not tomorrow, because if you have that longer view, you can do the things that Nike does, right? Which is say the backlash is the backlash. Which segues into the third thing, which is the social contract, right? Like companies basically over time build up a social contract that they effectively can use when stuff happens. The best case study is probably Tylenol during the tampering, right? Like there was a period in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, or mid 70s, early 80s, where Tylenol bottles got tampered with. And Tylenol realized that they had a problem and they recalled basically everything. And the CEO was was told that um, there's, there's video footage of you know the conversations and this is all on the historical record now where they the government basically said you don't have to recall this and the ceo said i do because i have a, i have a reputation and a responsibility to the consumers who buy this and and he basically cashed in 50 years of tylenol being thought of as a choice brand for pain medication like over the counter pain medication and said i'm going to cash in that that social uh, capital that I've accrued over time and recognize the fact that people will still come back because we're doing the right thing for the consumer over the long term. Dude, you know, you know who else was embroiled in this? Toyota. Because 
Toyota is is the number one pickup truck used by the various militant terrorists of the world. And right. they got into trouble because they said, how the hell are all these ISIS agents getting Toyota Tundras? So I think, but I think that goes back to my point. Now, I, I, I do not want to be ageist at all. I think 40, I think 35 and older are great at managing their social profiles. But I think it goes to the case of corporate governance issues. If you have a company Look. that is, a, no, wait, hold on. If you have a company, all right, that has, that is manufacturing Tylenol, let's stick with them, and you don't have any material scientists on your team, you'll be worried. Now, if you have a company that is all about trying to court younger kids to get your shoes let's say to get your brand and you don't have any one of that cohort on your team that has to be a red flag i don't think that i think it is but it's not it's not the central point of this conversation like whether or not my friendster profile is up to date is irrelevant See, with Friendster. Wait, know, whether or not whether or not like i i should be in a company because i'm the cohort that they're that they're chasing like you don't have to be 16 years old on the board of Walmart to tell them like, you know, Fortnite's a big deal. You, you, you don't need that. <laughs> what you need is a long view of the trend. You have to understand like the ebbs and flows of this. Is this something that's going to last? Is this something that we basically killed our social contract by overlooking? Or, or is this something that will pass? And CEOs are in that position right now. The CEOs, like you have the Tim Cooks of the world who seem to be navigating, like there's a broad view that Tim Cook is sort of like some sort of social arbiter when it comes to a lot of these things. And then there's the view that like, you know, um, the the ex-CEO of Uber is a lascivious jerk. Like, Like that's just in the social commentary and investors are aware of that. If you're an investor... The thing you have to be aware of and or afraid of is not, will my company get caught up in the next sort of big scandal? It's how are they set up to deal with the scandal after it happens? And what is the social contract that the company has with society over a long period leading up to it and after it? That's it for the week. I want to thank Matt Muscardi and Megan Eastman for joining me today to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe or rate and review us. We like to hear feedback, whether it's good or bad. Thanks so much again, and have a great rest of the week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. 
the information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.